Hey, welcome to another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman, and this week, we're going back to the classics. Like Mary J. Blige, we're asking, what's the 4-1-1? Yeah, yeah, count them. Four games in this match day, ending level at one. Only one team in the entire Bundesliga that managed to score more than two goals this weekend. You know, maybe the league's best. We're just saving their powder for Europe. With me this week is a great man to call for Bundesliga information. It's Kit Holden. Glad to have you back, man. Nice to be here, Matthew. Superb, superb. I understand you've been keeping a very close eye on your beloved Union Berlin, even in a professional capacity, right? I have, yeah. Yeah, I managed to, being the sort of jammy uh, piece of jam that I am, I managed to... uh, negotiated an arrangement where as soon as fans were shut out of stadiums, I, I took on a temporary role covering when you're on for one of the Berlin papers. So I've been, uh, yeah, one of the few fans who's managed to be at every single Union game pretty much since, uh, since lockdown. So yeah, not, not just for that reason, counting my lucky stars at the moment. It's been pretty fun. I know. I know. I, I'm suddenly finding myself wanting to read about Union. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the, you know, admittedly modest scoring action uh, from match day four this week. We're going to cast an eye toward European competitions, and we're going to bring you quantitative and qualitative looks at uh, how German football reporters write about everybody's favorite energy drink advertising vehicle in Leipzig. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball. We begin, as we always do, with the best of the match day just gone. This one was match day four, which, you know, kind of means there's not too much to read into the table just yet, but there are definitely a few storylines worth following. Uh, We did have newly promoted Stuttgart, making it two wins from two away games. Uh, And speaking of away winners, we had only away winners on this bizarre and somewhat Damp match day. Uh, aside from the four one ones, match day four saw five away wins. And where I want to start, however, is is in one of those uh, one ones. It's right in Kit's wheelhouse. It's the final game of the weekend, the one that I'm sure he was paying attention to, the one between FC Schalke 04 and Erste FC Union Berlin. Yeah, Schalke, they fought back from a 1-0 deficit to pick up their first points of the season in this one. Uh, Their fans had a little something to say to them surrounding the game as well. Uh, While Union will probably be a bit disappointed not to have made their early control of this game tell a bit more toward the result. Kit, your boys, they they made a lot of roster changes over the summer. This was uh, quite a new um, group that that, uh, the folks at the club put together, and they are doing some new things. And they've started pretty well. They've got two wins. They got a draw. They got a loss. Um, how do you assess both this game against Schalke and and sort of more broadly, like what's going on over there? Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. To start with the game for Schalke, I think there's a feeling after this game of of almost like bewildered disappointment among among Unionas in the sense that, yeah, as you say, actually people came away feeling like that three points was was definitely on the table and there for the taking and. And it was something of a missed opportunity, but then quite quickly a kind of, uh, yeah, uh, natural uh, humility kind of kind of um, followed that. And and I think the the general consensus is that you know if Union and the start of their second season in the Bundesliga are, are really disappointed to have only got a point away to Schalke, then 
you know, even if things are going badly at Schalke, which they are, it's that's that's really good news for Union that they're they're in a position to be complaining about that. And that's that's kind of yeah, the general feeling. It's a very very uh, good mood at the moment in in Kopenick in southeast Berlin. There's uh, yeah, as you say, lots and lots of new players come in. There's a a bit of feeling in the in the summer that perhaps not only the the sheer amount of new players, but also the nature of them that you know sort of big big names like Loris Carrios and Max Kruse coming in would would maybe be a bit unsettling for a club like Union who've never really had that kind of what's the word star quality or or you know sort of celebrity kind of players there before but so far it seems to be working out well I mean Carrios has yet to play a competitive game so we'll have to to wait and see with him Max Kruse despite making a few bad headlines at the end of last week has has generally seemed to settle in pretty well people seem pretty happy with him he seems to get on with the rest of the team and I think it's good. I think they're 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 following a a clear plan that which is to kind of grow steadily and uh, you know invest maybe slightly riskily in 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 some ways um, in order to shore up their position in the in the Bundesliga. And so far, on obviously four games isn't much of a sample size, but it seems to be seems to be working. I mean, the one defeat was against Augsburg, who have otherwise been very very good this season anyway, and. They they didn't play too badly in that game either. So yeah, it's a, it's been a good start. Yeah, I, I want to talk to you a little bit, I, and we, we'll pick up on uh, Max Cruz's misadventures uh, from last week uh, in a moment. But I really want to talk about his play on the field to start with. You know, Union had a surprisingly good season last year, and and that came. Not entirely, but mostly from being a team that was hard to beat, that did not necessarily try and um, do very much fancy going forward, let's just say. Max Cruz is not a player that fits into necessarily a system that works that way. He has a lot of uh, other things to bring to the table. He's already showing that he can bring a different dimension to this team. How comfortable is that fit in Union on the pitch? And with whom is he starting to gel and, and make, you know, start to, to sort of communicate on the field with, uh, at, at, in terms of, of sort of the system of play? Uh, I think it's a, uh, yeah, it's still too early to really say, you know, this is a brilliantly uh, fantastic ploy or, or a total failure or whatever. But, but I mean, it, so far it seems to be working and it's certainly a conscious decision by, Runa, the the sporting director, um, and presumably also the coach Fisher, to yeah diversify Onion's weaponry, if you like, and and move away from what, as you say, was was quite a kind of uh, straightforward approach to to shutting teams down and hitting them on the break uh, last year. Which is not to say, though, though, I would say that there were performances last year where. Union really, really did play some very, very nice football, and they showed sure. the to build on. I mean, I think about the, the narrow defeat to Leverkusen. I think they lost three-two at home, and for large parts of that game, this was February. I think they they really outplayed a, a Europa League, Champions League uh, level team. So there were signs that that you know, as I say, there were things to build on, and that's what they're trying to do at the moment. Fisher is a is a very kind of dry feet on the ground kind of chap, and and he's always warning that you know. Uh, yes, we want to develop, but but really the bread and butter is is winning games and getting points on the board. Um, but Cruiser is definitely a kind of key element in that in that sort of middle term plan to to really become slightly more potent attacking force. And I mean, so far he's he's being eased in because he's he's been injured across the well, throughout the summer. Um, he hasn't really played much or hadn't really played much um, before he joined for for several months. 
obviously Turkish league, uh, that sort of spell there and it in Akramanin hadn't really played since March. So he wasn't quite fit enough. He was recovering from an injury. So he's been eased in and he's, he's only started um, in the last couple of weeks. But he seems to be doing well. He seems to have a, a pretty good kind of link up with Sheraldo Becker on the right and uh, beginning into good spots and working well with his sort of devious crosses in, which, you know, sometimes are very pinpoint and sometimes hit Rose Ed. But, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, when they're good, they're good. And yeah, he certainly, as, as that kind of slightly more deep-lying uh, forward, gives on you on this kind of creativity and, and, and dynamism in their build-up play and, and stops them being limited to that, finding the the, the striker who was Sebastian Anderson or Sebastian Polter last year who, who would hold the ball up and, and wait for the, the others to break. Yeah, I, I want to talk briefly about uh, some of the other newcomers to this team. I mean, Max Cruz is, you know, by all accounts, unless you want to talk about the uh, the, the impact of, of, as you said, Loris Karius, a player who has not yet played a game for Union, who's, you know, with his experience in the Champions League and in the Premier League, is, is a high-profile player globally. But for Bundesliga fans, I think Max Kruse was certainly the addition that, that, that you know, caused the biggest ruckus. Uh, but there's a lot of other newcomers in, in this team. I mean, you look at even just the starting lineup from uh, Sunday's game. I mean, you know, Pohjan Palo and... Uh, Knocha and Luta, these are all new guys. I mean, you mentioned Charles Becker, who who isn't new, but kind of feels new. I, I feel like he never really arrived in the way that that you know he already has uh, this season for Union. I mean, who do you think at the moment is making the biggest impact aside from Max Kruse, who are sort of newly important to this team? Well, I think you're right about Becker. He he sort of had a bit of bad luck with injuries last year, and he's sort of. I wouldn't say struggle to integrate, but he's, but yeah, he's taken a bit longer than than some players, some of the newcomers from last year did. Um, he doesn't speak German so well, which I think maybe doesn't help. But, but I mean, yeah, he's. I think he's keen to prove himself this year. I get the feeling that he sort of has a kind of score to settle a little bit with him, with himself, and with the the sort of general perception of him. And uh, yeah, it's been good to see. I think even in the last few weeks, we've seen him improve and and seen him kind of get more comfortable in that in that role on the right which is which is good to see because because Fisher's given him that time and that space although there are you know other options uh that, that Fisher has on in those wide positions he's he's sort of given Becker the chance and I think it's paying off Nico Schlotterbeck actually is, is probably the one I pick out he's not quite as glamorous as as Becker or Cruiser or, or, he's, or any of he those. scores I mean, goals man he does score goals <laughs> he's got more goals, goals than either yeah, of those guys exactly at least <laughs> I think I'm not sure if he still is the league still I guess no he can't be but but yeah for a time he was he was he scored two goals he scored his first professional goal ever uh in his first game uh for Union in, in the cup and then in his first league game for Union he scored again and yeah he looks to be I mean his brother obviously did very very well in a similar kind of one-year loan arrangement from Freiburg last season um and he looks to be settling in just as quickly so until he got injured the other week I think there was a, a, a lot of optimism about about him as well before we talk about uh, Max Cruz's uh, misadventures, and, and that's always fun. Uh, he's, he's a man followed by uh, stories of misadventure, let's just say. I do want to sort of touch on the, I don't know, maybe be the ambition question, which is something that hangs over clubs who sort of uh, spend a very long time in the lower divisions and then make it into the first division. The early signs from this season are really good. The results are there. Uh, the, the new additions have been working out largely. This club is beginning to show that they really do want to be here to stay in the top division. How are you sort of viewing both as a fan and now as, as a beat writer for, for Tagesspiegel, this transition, uh, this, this, is, this is a whole new world for Union? 
It is, but it's not necessarily an unexpected uh, new world. I think I think that's the the thing to bear in mind with with the fact that it's happened this time round. I mean, Onion came pretty close in in 2013-14, I think it was, and then in in 16-17 again to going up. And I think in both those seasons, there was the general consensus that if they had gone up, they would have gone straight back down again. Whereas now. It was really not maybe overdue that promotion at the end of the season before last, but it was it was due, and it was certainly part of a kind of longer term plan that had been elucidated for for a long time and and was very clear. And that plan is now continuing, and I think that's the thing. I think because they know exactly what they want, which is to establish themselves first, and then and then see where they are uh, over the course of a few years and because they know exactly how they want to do that, they can afford to make these perhaps slightly more unusual calls or out there calls of signing players like Cruiser or or such things because there's the the kind of core operating system of that club is working very well and there's a lot of trust both internally and then also between the club and the fans and even to a certain extent the club and and their critics or the media um who who would be the ones to kind of maybe yeah sort of stir skepticism about about moves like that there's because things have been working over the last few years with this kind of fisher runet axis there's a lot of optimism a lot of good feeling and and i think that's kind of a virtuous circle in some ways that it makes players want to come to a club like that. Um, Runat said that the other week that you know some of these bigger names are potentially willing to take a slight pay cut if they know that they're going to come to a club where there's a really good atmosphere where they can contribute something, whether they can work in peace uh, in a way they can't necessarily against against Schalke, as we saw at the weekend again. Clubs like that. So it's it's you know without kind of just painting everything as, as a rosy picture. Obviously, there are problems. Uh, on and off the pitch too it, it is it is a machine that's working very well and is working according to plan and I think yeah at least for the next year or two there's no real reason to think that the, uh, that a massive crash or, or you know the cage is suddenly going to come down and <laughs> everyone's going to wake up and, and realise it was all a kind of sham because it's not it's it's the result of good hard work by those things yeah, yeah, I, I'm I'm becoming increasingly convinced that uh, that Onion are going to stick around for some time as long as they hang on to their uh, current current sporting leadership. The aforementioned misadventures of, of Max Cruz. I think it's an interesting case because from everything that I read, all the things that are, are sort of getting him into a degree of hot water, which is to say, you know, inviting some fans to play cards with him uh, as some part of some sort of contest, kind of ill-advised, meeting up at a shisha bar to play cards in the midst of a, of a pandemic or his uh, his meetup with some, some people uh, in which he was shown on social media to be you know, uh, you know, sort of shaking hands or dapping people up or whatever. These are all things, in some ways, that like if it was any other set of circumstances besides the one we're living in now with it with with the disease and stuff, this would be stuff that people would say, "Oh, what a great guy! What what he's so close to to the public. He's just a regular guy who likes to meet up with with um, you know regular football fans." But it was kind of a clangor the fall of 2020. I mean, what exactly is going on with this guy? Yeah, I mean, he, he's, I think, to a certain extent, a law unto himself. He had more Instagram, still has more Instagram followers than, than on your own, uh, which was uh, noted by, by many people when he joined. And I think is a, is a good kind of, although it's obviously, you know, very superficial, it's, it's still a good, good indicator of the fact that, that his, he sees himself as a brand to be, to be marketed and uh, on your own as kind of, part of that story rather than 
himself as an employee of the club. I mean, he obviously sees himself as an employee of the club as well, but, but perhaps first and foremost, he sees himself as a Bantam United. And, you know, he plays for that. I mean, he's, he's come out and, you know, ostentatiously in front of 20 reporters in front of the stadium, you know, got into a bright yellow Porsche and, and you know, very, very slowly let the roof go back. So it, so, you know, retracts into the back of the car and then, and then driven off with 10 almighty revs, knowing that, you know, everybody and, and ensuring that everybody has time to note it all down in their notebooks and take the pictures and everything. So he knows how to play the game. And, and Onyol knew that when they, they signed him and, it, it, what he did last week is is a, is a huge clangor. <laughs> I know from a, a little bird that, that I know. I'm not sure it was the same shisha bar, but he he did go. He was in a shisha bar approximately three or four hours, if that, after his his official presentation at Union as well. So you know that's that's part of his lifestyle, and I, I I'm sure that that's not the only two visits to the shisha bar since he's joined, as it were, since he. But. Yeah, to broadcast it and to make a big thing where you where you invite total strangers is is obviously absurd um, and a breach of of the spirit, if not the letter of the law. And I, I to be honest, I wonder why they haven't been a bit harder on him for this. I, I mean, I've got a hypothesis on this. Go on then. Well, think about who your chairman is and what he's been saying about you know letting fans into the stadium. I mean, Dirk Singler has been the, the the loudest voice in the Bundesliga about you know let's 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 get the fans back in let's have a friendly against Hanover with you know lots and lots of people that let this I don't think that the club's line about this has been very clear. Well, I mean, I I I, I know what you mean, but I, I I in some ways I think they have had a clear line, which is that um, which uh, they've also employed some level of. of smoke and mirrors and disingenuous at, at certain points along the line in this debate. But basically, their clear line on that issue has been very much that they want to come up with uh, very, very uh, well-thought-out systems of, of getting a full stadium with a, a functioning hygiene concept that, that the city authorities approve. Um, that's been their official line the whole time. And so actually, something like this is is bad for them in that respect because it it... it lends credibility to the argument that they are just laissez-faire about it, whereas they're, they're really, really falling over themselves to assure people and, and insist to people every time this issue comes up that they're, they're not laissez-faire about it. They're taking it immensely seriously, but they're trying to find a, a middle ground which allows safety and uh, uh, also for, for people to come to the stadium. So it, actually, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit into, into that, yeah, that whole kind of um, argument. And I think there is a tendency... Particularly, I think it's, it's shown in this story as well. There's become there's developed a tendency from people outside uh, the club to kind of just cast everything. You know, they're, they're, oh, they're, they're just you know they're irresponsible. This club are behaving irresponsibly, and and that in turn I think makes the club become more defensive in their in their communications than perhaps they should be. And and it all becomes a little bit messy when you when you're discussing this. And I think that's possibly the reason why they haven't come down so heavily because they want to just kind of move on from it as quickly as possible and, and not have it as a kind of long saga played out in the built site on with, you know, Cruz's agent moaning six weeks down the line or something like that. That would be my hypothesis rather than the fact that they really just, just don't see a problem because I think they do. I mean, I think the, the way they reacted, uh, internally was, was, uh, reasonably strong and, and they certainly weren't happy about the fact that he'd done it. But, um, but as I said, I, you know, I think they also knew when they signed him that that this was going to be part of the course, and they were going to have to 
get over this. So. Yeah, yeah, he is a wild card. Things are going to happen. Before we leave this behind, we should talk about the Schalke side of this, at least um, maybe some of the stuff off the pitch. I mean, I think if we're honest here, this game was not, uh, a, like many games this weekend, was not an exactly uh, a barn burner. Um, it was basically a, a pretty even game, at least from, you know, after after Union scored and Schalke seemed to wake up. And, you know, I don't think any, either team particularly cover themselves in glory. So I, I I don't want to discuss the game as much as I want to discuss the idea that the, uh, the Schalke Ultras, you know, they seemed to be, uh, you know, on guard for, uh, or, or sort of spoiling for a little bit of not necessarily conflict, but a reminder to the team that they um, are, are sort of watching them closely uh, in this, you know, season of struggle and saying that uh, if they, don't show at least this much effort in the Derby uh, next week. There will be hell to pay. I don't know. Do you do you take this as a positive sign, or do you take it as a sign that uh, this is a, a a squad who you know is in trouble of of having some you know real discord uh, if, if they don't you know show their fans what they're capable of? I yeah. I I, I don't really understand. I have to say the rationale behind making a, a public display of kind of pressure on, on, on your players like that from a, from a fan's perspective or an ultra's perspective. I, I really don't understand what, what that's supposed to achieve. Uh, and I also don't understand really what, what the hell would be that they'd have to pay. I don't, I don't really understand, particularly as they're not in the stadium, what kind of, you know, leverage the ultras have in that regard. So it strikes me as a bit odd and it strikes me as, as something which is sort of, can only really, I mean, I've, you know, as, let's give them the benefit of that out and say it was a very nice, constructive conversation they had. Uh, it, it seems just a strange thing to do and, and, and almost a kind of needless extra pile of pressure to heap on players who are, who are finding their way under a, a new coach. And I kind of think that's, you know, that's, it's just a classic thing with those clubs where, when they need time and when they need space to to settle and and to develop something uh, over the course of a few weeks and months, there's always something. There's always whether it's the fans or the media or an ex-player or, or somebody who who pops up and and just pours oil on the fire again. And and I I just can't imagine that's a very healthy working environment. And I think we should give Manuel Brown the benefit of the doubt. I think there's there's been a lot of kind of bashing of Manuel Brown uh, as a kind of coach who's not in any way significant or or good enough for Schalke um, which I think is you know I I think let's let's give him time let's see see what he can do and and actually you know you don't actually need to be a a big name to to run a big club like that there are plenty of people who've come to big clubs and and done well with uh, you know a similar record or even a worse record um before uh the the question will be can he work well with this group of players and can he you know get the best out of them as as quickly as possible and i i just think you can't tell that after two weeks there's no reason to to pose ultimatums and especially before a game where, where Schalke are clearly the underdog and and you know clearly likely to get rolled over if, if you know Haaland and Reiner and Sancho have a good day so it, it just seems needlessly dramatic for me. I just don't get it. Yep. Yep. It was a bit of a head scratcher in my view as well. All right. We have, we have a thing 
going, uh, you know, you, you and me, Kit. Um, it, every time that you're on the show, we have to stir the pot a little bit uh, with regard to our little <laughs> intra-Berlin rivalry. And this time, really it's my turn to have... Uh, yeah. so, I can't stand them. They're real. Oh, my God. Uh, Union. Uh, the so worst. Nasty. The worst. Yeah, okay, well, smell it, it is my turn to have my tail between my legs this time. <laughs> you know, Her- Herto, oh, they yeah, did... Sorry. I love Stuttgart. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> That's me laughing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was a 2-0 loss at home to Stuttgart, newly promoted Stuttgart. That doesn't really sound all that great uh, on, on its face. But... There's probably more to digest there a little bit. Um, would you prefer to talk about, you know, Hertha's problems or or the surprisingly solid Stuttgart here, Kit? I mean, as, as thrilling and endlessly fascinating as the surprisingly solid Stuttgart uh, sounds to me, I, I think I'm going to have to, you know, for the sake of, well, for your sake, more than anything, uh, talk about Hertha's problems. Yeah. On brand. Tell me, tell me the problems. What, what, what's, what's wrong with them? Well, you're the expert. I mean, <laughs> when, when, when you began this season, did you, did you feel really that this, this was going to be, you know, uh, with Cunha and, and Labadea and, and maybe Tesla across your, across your chests, that this was going to be the, the new dawn that you've long hoped for? Or, or did, you, did you feel that there would be hiccups along the way and, and oh, yeah. you, know, you might be feeling come come november yeah for sure for sure i you know i would have liked to have seen them you know get a little bit more um results I, but i truthfully i think losing narrowly to byron that was a that was a you know a, a decent result uh, one that they probably could have gotten a point out of but they didn't i thought they actually pl- played fairly well um other than their mistakes against uh eintracht i don't think i mean i think stuttgart are a much better coached team at the moment and that they've had more time with with their coach and they seem to sort of have uh, a clearer plan when they had the ball than then do Hertha. I mean, Hertha's, you know, sort of mixture of newcomers and um, injuries slash, um, you know, international break tiredness seemed to really hamper them a lot in the game. They had to start Matthew Leckie, for God's sakes. But ultimately, when I also look back at the game, I, I look at things like the, the, the XG after the game and saw that you know you know Hertha actually had better uh, goal scoring chances than Stuttgart did and they just didn't do anything with it. I'm upset that they couldn't get a result out of this game, but I also understand what why they didn't. I also didn't necessarily think this was going to be a season where they hit the ground running. I think that in the end it's going to turn out to be you know okay. I think they have enough quality and uh, enough wherewithal in, in the coaching staff to, to make that quality show. But I think it's all a real mess at the moment and I'm not happy about it. Is there, do you think there's a kind of a minimum expectation there? I mean, I was talking about when you're kind of maybe going slightly over the, the budget even, or their, their, their own kind of limits in order to, to reach the next step each season, just incrementally. Do you think Hertha, with this kind of project and with the new money, there's a danger that if they just land in mid-table again, that players like Cunha and, and Toussaint just go, well, this isn't what it's cracked up to be, and, and they have to start all over again each year? Yeah, that is always that is always a danger when when you're in a club in this position. I mean, you, you, you see clubs who have that kind of ambition falter a lot if they can't get success quickly and then build on that success year on year. You know, I, I would assume that we could probably get another season out of a lot of these more expensive players. I mean, 
yeah, if 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 Hertha have a, a truly bad season, if they end up in 14th place or something like that, I could definitely see, you know, guys like the ones you mentioned uh, looking to get out. But if we finish, you know, 8th or something like that and it's it's, you know, uh an open question in the last, let's say, 10 games of the season, whether or not um, Europe is possible. I don't think that there's going to be a sense of, de- of, of demoralized players or demoralized fans necessarily. I worry still. I worry still that, that things are coming together slowly. And I worry that, um, you know, the rest of the league is sort of leaving us behind in terms of points. Like, you know, I opened the show saying that I don't think we have to worry about, you know, talking about the table too much at this juncture of the season. And that goes not only for Hertha, but for, you know, teams who are, who are high up as well, who are doing well. But, you know, if we're still, (laughs) if we're still, you know, way down come match day 11, there's going to be some real, real problems uh, internally and, um, you know, in terms potentially in, in terms of investment. You know, we're not going to get that that sweet sponsor that we want if we're hanging around in 14th place. So it, it, the pressure is definitely on Bruno. Yeah, and it could be a, a fun derby in that respect. If uh, on is still sitting several places above Hatter and uh, For sure. Yeah. Any thoughts uh, about Stuttgart just before we leave them behind? I'm I'm truly impressed at their um the sort of the speed of their transition play, their wing play. It's you know, actually a really fun team to watch. I'm I'm, I'm glad they're around. Yeah, they look, I mean they look like a uh just I suppose to a large extent they are. I mean they were narrowly relegated against one of the best promoted sides of the last, you know, uh, 10 or 20 years, uh, a season and a half ago. Um, and, you know, bounced back reasonably quickly, if not entirely smoothly. And But broadly speaking, I think, yeah, you look at them and they look like a, a solid Bundesliga side. They don't look like a, um, well, clearly they're not a new side and, and they also don't look like a side to a kind of, you know, caught between between the worlds, as they'd say in uh, in Germany. So, I, yeah, I think, yeah, they I agree. They look impressive, and uh, yeah, I'd be very surprised if they're they're really really in the thick of it uh, come next spring. All right. Well, uh, I guess that's probably enough Stuttgart and, and here to talk. Let's talk now about the teams who are preparing to get going into the Champions League and how they fared on the weekend. Uh, Dortmund, uh, they they you know got a one nil win over one of their uh, semi bogey sides in in Hoffenheim. Uh, Marco Royce was uh, the man to come to the rescue. He came on with about twenty five minutes to go, uh, got the goal that uh, gave the points to Dortmund. They are preparing to take on Lazio in Rome this week. Uh, also in their group in the Champions League are Zenit, St. Petersburg, and Club Brugge. How do you see their outlook um, moving forward into into the Champions League? I mean, that's that's certainly going to bring a new dimension to you know squad rotation. It's going to bring a new dimension to you know the kinds of players that that you um, you know choose to put into Bundesliga games and to to you know more high profile Champions League games. This this could be uh, uh, potentially a turning point for this this team. Yeah, I mean, normally I I, I tend to be quite skeptical about the kind of the importance of that thing of being in three tournaments or, or, or two tournaments and the extra strain of that um because i tend to think they're professionals and if you're doing well in the champions league the 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 positive you get from a 
you know, the general good mood is, is probably as uh, as good for your league form as the the negative of the extra strain. But I think in this season it is different because the the schedule is so yeah tight and so so crammed in. Um, the more games you have, and, and particularly in these these kind of coming weeks where they've got, I think it's three English weeks where they've got midweek games and, and weekend games, one after the other. That's yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how how this team deals with that. Particularly as I think not so much the the depth is an issue, but because I think there's in most positions they they they're pretty well stocked. But the I think the experience is is the one thing. I mean, Royce said after the game against Hoffenheim that you know at Dortmund we we know how to deal with this. We know how to deal with this. You know the full schedule and the you know playing every three or four days, but. Actually, a lot of these players haven't experienced that at the, the top level, a lot of the young ones. And it'd be interesting to see how, how a Giovanni Reyna responds to that challenge, for example, or you know how a, whether, whether Haaland is, in fact, a machine or whether he, even he kind of hits a, hits a wall at some point and, and yeah, his, sort of, his body catches up with him. And I think, yeah, that'll be a, an interesting challenge for them. But, uh, yeah, I think the result against Hoffenheim is, is encouraging as well because it's the sort of game that, that they usually haven't won under Lucien Favre uh, and so yeah I think that, the the ability to nick a point uh, in a kind of somewhat scrappy fashion like that or nick three points as it were um, is uh, yeah a good sign for sure for sure this has been uh, you know uh, the oft-mentioned Achilles heel is to sort of you know drop points at dumb periods and not as you say, Nick points. Interesting little little subplot, I guess, uh, on, on Tuesday's game. They're, they're meeting up with uh, Chiro Immobile, who you know didn't quite work out at Dortmund a, a few years ago, but certainly has worked out uh, and worked out and worked out uh, uh, over the last couple of years in Serie A, where he just can't stop scoring. The rest of their group being Zenit and Brugge, this to me looks like a completely doable group. Um, is there any doubt in your mind that that Dortmund uh, are probably the favorite in this group? Ooh, I, I it might be close run with Lazio, but I still think that they have the edge. They have more experience. Yeah, I, yeah, I, no, they, they they should get out of it. But I mean, it's it's one of those groups we saw. You know, Leipzig had have had a couple of times early on, and obviously it's a different kind of team with with less experience than Champions League, but. They've had similar kind of groups where you look at it and you think, oh, they've got a really good chance of getting out of that. And actually, it's you know it's proved tough against against those sort of teams in Zenit. And, you know, some of those draws, you know, I wonder trying to Belgium was a really high risk zone or, or St. Petersburg. Even the you know logistics of it might might be a bit more difficult than perhaps it looks on paper. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say they're you know sure things, but yeah, they they're definitely the favorites to to qualify for certain and probably to win the group as well. I feel you. FC Bayern München, they were 4-1 winners, you know, away winners as all winners were uh, <laughs> this weekend at uh, Armenia Bielefeld. Uh, we got a brace apiece for Thomas Müller and uh, Robert Lewandowski. So, you know, pretty much game, set, match, easy peasy there. Bayern are facing uh, Atletico Madrid at home on Wednesday. They also have uh, Lokomotiv Moscow and RB Salzburg in their group. Is their outlook particularly uh, brighter or less bright than Dortmund's? I mean, we have seen them may have some hiccups this season in, in the, the early running. I mean, that bad loss to Hoffenheim as well as uh, being pushed pretty pretty hard by Hertha show that 
astute teams uh, or teams with a certain amount of, of uh, you know, speed and or tactical nows can cause them some problems. How do you see them going into this Champions League? They're the, they're the, they're the champs, so they have every reason to think they'll do well. Yeah, I mean, I mean it wasn't just Hoffenheim and, and Hertha either. I mean, even Bielefeld uh, already having lost the game caused them problems in the second half uh, the weekend, you know, hit them on the break and then also forced a, well, it was a mistake from Javi Martinez, but still pressure enough to and good pressing and good opportunism enough to kind of force a red card and get by and out of 10 men. Um, which, you know, had it been 3-1 and not 4-1 might have been, been a bit more interesting. But uh, I think, yeah, I think Bayern, by virtue of being, uh, on the face of it, a significantly stronger team and, and reigning champions have a, have a rosier outlook than, than Dortmund, but they are also more tired. I mean, <laughs> you know, Flick was talking about it again at the weekend, uh, how little time they had to prepare between the Champions League and the and the Bundesliga, and then they had the two extra games with the European Super Cup and the DFL Super Cup. Most or a significant proportion of their players have were on that international break, which uh, you know meant they played two or three times within a couple of weeks, which is you know different to, to the smaller Bundesliga clubs where most of the players were you know had a good rest. Um, and now they're looking at uh, I think they've, yeah they've had three games in the last well the, the, this game against Atletico will be the third in six days, and then they've got another you know three before the end of the month. It's it's a very full schedule, and I think the group isn't so easy that you think there, there isn't the, the prospect of hiccups. But, yeah, I think it could also be a lot tougher. I think Atletico away is, is always particularly difficult um, at home as well, but, but perhaps less so. And then the other two, you really should be beating. I mean, Salzburg have shown that they're... they're it can be a very strong side, but they're you know they're not in the same league. So I think Bayern shouldn't have too many worries. But the question is, can they get through it without you know this horrible kind of autumn phase without getting so tired that their league form suffers or without picking up injuries that that knock their season sideways? That's the the big question, I think. Yeah, for sure. Borussia Mönchengladbach. They were you know among the the one one teams uh, from the weekend. Um, you know Jonas Hofmann's. Uh, Penalty kick was was cancelled out by Valt Weghorst's uh, late goal in that one, uh, but Gladbach were probably in 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 some senses already looking forward to uh, their Champions League campaign, and I'm I'm going to say it already. This is going to be a very tough Champions League campaign. I'm not going to say tough in the sense that they're going to get smoked, but um, they have a very big challenge ahead of them. They are away to Inter. On Wednesday, uh, later on uh, in the campaign, they're going to have to face uh, Real Madrid uh, home and away, as well as Shakhtar Donetsk. These are this is probably you know a, a, a group that is as jam packed with Champions League experience as as any in the entire competition uh, this this year. Are they gonna make it out of this group, kid? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> it's, it's but what a story if they did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, never say never. But no, I mean, I, yeah, and it hasn't been the, the best start of the season for them either. I, I can't see them. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, you're, you're right to pinpoint the experiences. It's not so much a, a, an enormous gulf in quality. Because I think on their day, Gladbach could could you know good enough to to grab a result against against any of those teams. But but over six games, uh, 
they just, you know, th- this is a team that doesn't really have that much experience of, of that competition. And, and we've seen in the past that, uh, particularly from a German perspective, teams that don't have that much experience um, tend to suffer when they, even when they come up against supposedly weaker opposition. I mentioned Leipzig earlier, and I think even way back to, to Klopp's Dortmund when they first first came through, their, their first season was a disaster as well. So it was, you know, it's often the way that, but yeah, they need a couple of years to, to really settle and, and I can't see them, you know, getting out of that group. It's it would be a bit of a Houdini Houdini feat, I think. Yeah. A German team. Let's let's just enjoy it while it lasts. Um, <laughs> finally, RB Leipzig, they were 2-0 winners uh, away to Augsburg this weekend. Uh, they are facing uh, Bashak Shahir at home on Tuesday. And, and you know, they are also going to be facing uh, Manchester United and Paris Saint-Germain in that group. I think this is a really doable task for them. I think as long as they uh, as long as they don't sort of you know, do anything stupid like lose at home. Uh, this should be this should be a group they can get out of. I agree, and I think you know, although it was quite popular at the start of the season to write them off and say you know they oh, they'll be too tired and they've lost lost their key striker and everything. I, I you know they they've looked good uh, this season, and I think they'll you know, if they can again negotiate this this period without too many injuries or, or problems, then they'll yeah I think they'll be. They'll they'll feel confident about about going far again in the Champions League and and taking it to teams. I think that's uh, yeah uh, a good thing for them that they've they've not got the kind of yeah group of death that maybe Gladbach got. Yep, yep. So best of luck, Leipzig. Yeah, and speaking of Leipzig, on, on the most recent Talking Football Extra episode, uh, Nick Vildhagen and Felix Tamsut talked a lot about the fifty plus one rule and about RB Leipzig, but you know. When you get those two guys together, it would be hard for them not to. Uh, afterwards, Nick thought that uh, we could go into some more detail about how that club fits into the Bundesliga cosmos. So he made some calls. He got in touch with uh, Christian Volp, who is uh, an editor at the Funke Sportsgruppe. That's a set of newspapers uh, in Germany. And he has written his bachelor's thesis in journalism about how journalists cover the club where, you know, where the RB stands for Rasenballsport and definitely not Red Bull. Uh, The thesis is titled uh, Fairy Tale Served from a Can, RB Leipzig and Sports Journalism. And it's, you know, the first scholarly work on the German sports press coverage of RB Leipzig. Take it away, Nick. Last week on the show, we um, talked about the 50 plus one rule and um, the name RB Leipzig came up quite a few times because they uh, have received an awful lot of uh, criticism from from fans in Germany for the way they circumnavigate the 50 plus one rule and uh, by how much money uh, Red Bull has spent in the process of establishing a team in the Bundesliga that is also a thorn in the eyes of many. Why does this sort of criticism not subside? I mean, we, we are talking about the fact that we sort of starting to get used to having them there, but why, why, do, why don't fans just accept it? Uh, is it, I mean, is it, is it a thing of, uh, <laughs> fans thinking that as long as they start, if, if they don't stop protesting that they, they are going to get rid of this element at some point? Yeah. I, I think it's a um, very, so, so when the fans protest, I think it's a very, um, I, ideal thinking in their head. Like, um, we are still here. We uh, don't, um, they can't get rid of us. Although, um, protesting against Red Bull may not 
get them success, you know? Um, but it's, um, yeah, they do it cause no one else would do it then. Um, after the, um, after DFB and, uh, UEFA accepted Red Bull and, um, they are Rasenballsport project. Um, things, things were done basically. No, I think, um, nobody thinks that there will be a decision in the, uh, at Frankfurt where the, uh, DFB headquarter headquarter is and, um, they will, yeah, get, get rid of, of RB Leipzig again. No one thinks that, um, but yeah, it's, it's still, you know, the officials at Rasenballsport, uh, don't really behave like um we we want that everybody accepts us um like uh, i think it's not very um yeah how can i explain it they are not very uh sympathetic to to many people i think but they don't really care on the other hand so um they are accepted um or they are accepted by the by the officials and uh, that's what counts uh, what counts for them um, another thing you mentioned in your thesis is that um, the way the team is regarded uh, in West Germany versus East Germany and by casual onlookers uh, compared to hardcore football fans, it's actually quite different, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I actually um, didn't talk to uh, people from uh, from Leipzig for the thesis, but uh, for with uh, journalists who, um, who cover um, nationwide sports. And that's what they uh, des- described, you know. Um, it, uh, I think uh, I'm living um, in the middle of the rural area between Dortmund and Schalke, and um, the football culture is, um, I think, a very, very important topic here. And, yeah, that's maybe why my point of view on Leipzig uh, is shaped in a specific way. You know, maybe I wouldn't think different about RB Leipzig um, when I would uh, grow up in, I don't know, in the near of Leipzig, you know. And um, I think the, the project is 11 years old now. And so w- when people get into football, they are normally around, I don't know, six or eight years old. So all the kids growing up with Bundesliga football now are used to RB Leipzig. Um and that's probably as you, um, because you asked, um, if this really uh, makes sense for them to, to, um, invest the money, although they are not accepted. Yeah. They are not, maybe not accepted by the, by all the fans, but what about all the people, um, all the kids, um, getting into Bundesliga football now, they don't have any, any arguments, uh, why they shouldn't, uh, support RB Leipzig, you know, good, good team, good football. <laughs> it's it's a bit difficult to understand the intricacies of the 50 plus one room when you're 12 years old um for sure yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> um so you you talked about the fact that you interviewed eight different journalists in order to find out how the sports press are covering rb um so and that presents the the the, the eight eight of them so I agree that it is a difficult challenge to discuss a topic, the topic of the club as RBR, a commercial construct that has been created by a company. Um, so how do journalists approach those topics? Uh, you know, the circumnavigating of the 50 plus one rule, uh, the commonization of uh, fo- f- uh, German football from within. I mean, th- those are really big topics. But so how do they approach those? Mm. Um, 
What I learned is that the journalists are still very or mostly critical about RB Leipzig and the construct behind it. Um, but to discuss those topics in the in the articles, they have to find um, occasions. You know, no one would write an article about the 50 plus one rule and RB Leipzig doing the national break um, because it doesn't make sense at all. There are other topics which are way more important at the moment. Um, like one occasion would be the, um, the another player's move from Salzburg to Leipzig or the strange capital conversion you mentioned before. Um, you know, then critical journalists are more likely to write down some of the topics uh, we talked about. But nowadays, the coverage about RB Leipzig is more about the or more from a sports perspective. Like they have their Bundesliga match on Saturdays. Wednesday's uh, Champions League match and press conference in between. Why should journalists publish articles about RB Leipzig and the 50 plus one rule? I mean, no, it, it makes it, it makes sense, I think. But I'd also understand why fans would like journalists or media um, to to cover more the negative aspects of about Rasenballsport um, Leipzig. But on the other hand, I, I'm the the, um, the coverage changed over the years, of course. Um, when Red Bull started his project in 2009, um, it was, yeah, a very already a very big topic. Although it was about a team playing in the fifth division, because it was a, a brand new um, approach to to football in Germany. And after that. Um, yeah, some decisions of DFB and UEFA um, made that um, yeah the the there's no more development in this RB Leipzig story. You know, all the arguments are uh, are well known from both sides, and nothing happens. So, uh, nothing ha has happened since then. Another another thing that uh, one of one of the journalists said in your thesis is that um, well you could wake up Oliver Minslov at three in the morning and if you were to confront him with you know all the arguments he he would just sort of go into that modus operandi that he has developed with all that media tra training and give you the same answers that he would always give you to those topics so is there really a point of approaching the officials and sort of trying to do this combative style of journalism if you know you are going to get the same old answers time and time again. Um, which brings me to the next topic, which is, is the fact that you discussed there are actually some differences between how the different media outlets and how different sections of the press cover RB Leipzig. I mean, there's the print media on the one hand side, then there's the local press, uh, which is mostly print media as well. And then there's the TV uh, rights holders. So how are the working condition of, of these different groups of journalists? And uh, how, how is the uh, coverage of RB Leipzig differing from, from within those groups? So um, what the journalists say and also the um, literature said is that TV uh, journalism in general regarding sports is not that critical as the um, coverage in print media, which means that um, that, you know, the, the news station or the TV stations buy the rights the, uh, to broadcast Bundesliga and all that stuff for so much money. Um, it's 
of course, difficult to criticize the system. It's not difficult to criticize Julian Nagelsmann why uh, he he lost the game or so. That's that's not the problem. That's not what we're talking about. But to criticize the the whole world of um, the whole world of football, you need to have a, a more just um, a more yeah more distance. Like, and that's what only um, print media or nationwide print media can do. Like the, the regional newspapers, they suffer from, uh, yeah, from um, a bad financial situation. Um, there's, there are no many, um, there are not many people working there. And yeah, they have high pressure to, uh, to be close to the club officials. That's what newspapers who cover um, nationwide sports don't have. Yeah, I mean, there is probably a reason why Dieter Matichitz, uh when he gives interview to German press outlets, is usually the the local paper in Leipzig, isn't it? Yeah, and probably Servostifo as well. <laughs> yeah. the, the Red Bull channel. <laughs> so, I mean, the, yeah, there's there's definitely um, a lack of criticism coming from from those quarters. As um, uh, I mean, basically, what what any team can do uh, if they want to screw over a local journalist is say, okay, we, we're not going to give you any interviews, and then what? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't doesn't hurt Spiegel as much. Um, it doesn't hurt the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung as much. But if you're working for a local newspaper in Leipzig and you don't yeah. get any player interviews or any interviews with the officials, then what? Um, and uh, yeah. as, as for the world of TV, I mean, Sky buys the rights for over a billion euros. And uh, if they then will go on to say, well, here's the Bundesliga and this is what makes the Bundesliga. Well, this is a bad element from within the Bundesliga. Yeah. They, they shoot themselves in the foot. I mean, they want to present this as, yeah. as one of the greatest things on earth. And uh, this sort of yeah. doesn't fit into the narrative. Um, uh, That's actually one thing we, uh, we learned during the uh, Corona crisis. Um, you could see which, uh, or you could see that the um, the TV media did everything to bring back Bundesliga because they, uh, yeah, to 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 broadcast it. You know, that's what um, I mean. It, it's not. Uh, I think it's not proper journalism to uh, to do everything to bring back the Bundesliga um, and uh, closing your eyes on, uh, yeah rising rising numbers of uh, corona cases in the Bundesliga uh, or in Germany. All right. Once again, thank you to Christian Volp for sharing his thoughts and his findings uh, with us. You can find him on Twitter where his handle is at Christian Volp. W-O-O-P is the way you spell that last name. Uh, if you want more, there's a lot more where that came from. You can listen to the entire interview between Nick and Christian on our Patreon channel where you're going to find a wealth of fresh content our, our, our big picture show, Talking Foosball Extra, our historic match day moments series, much, much more. It's all waiting for you for just a few bucks a month. All right, here comes uh, the next part of Talking Foosball. You could call it the rest of match day four and the Europa League. Yeah, I guess the Europa League always ends up with the rest. It's just the way it is. Um, it, it's an acquired taste. I've acquired it in various seasons. And, and I think there's probably something to, to, to talk about here. Bayer Leverkusen are one of the teams getting ready to get into the uh, Europa League this season. They were 1-0 winners away at Mainz. And they are going to be facing Nice at home 
on Thursday. They have Slavia Prague and Hopwell Beersheva to come in, in the Europa League campaign. What do you make of Leverkusen to start this season? It's certainly not been it's not been a season where there's a lot of uh, you know happy, happy, joy, joy. I mean, the, the departure of Kai Havertz was was pretty much expected, but something about the talk between Peter Boss and uh, Rudy Fuller over strengthening the squad, which didn't really happen to the the extent that Bosch wanted it, that that deal that fell through for Milat Rashica left sort of a sour taste in some fans' mouths. This obviously was a nice result for them uh, to get a win over Mites. You know, everybody should beat Mites, frankly. But how do you see them heading into their Europa League campaign? Yeah, I think it's interesting that you, you talk about the, the, yeah, the transfer policy because I think it's one of those strange things where they've, they've obviously been expecting to sell Harvats for such a long time. You'd, you'd assume that they had a, a clear idea of how they were going to, you know, use that money and, and replace him and, and plug the gap or, you know, reinvest or whatever. But the, yeah, it didn't really turn out that way, at least in this window. And, uh, I think, you know, you can't underestimate how the fact that this transfer window has been longer than usual, that it's uh, ended much later than usual, the, the way, the dynamics of it in terms of uh, clubs' finances um, have changed, I think has made things like that harder for, for clubs to to really do smoothly. I mean, to take the, the example from Onion, which is where I generally have my expertise, the, you know, the, Oliver Runa was talking about this. They've ended up with with four goalkeepers in their squad this season um, when really probably they only wanted three. And part of that was because they couldn't loan one of the keepers out. Uh, didn't didn't quite the deal didn't quite work in the end, and and they you know got the chance to get Carrius when they did. And, and Runa's sort of take on that the other week was to say it's better to act than to react. And I think that that's sensible, even if you end up with with four first team goalkeepers. Um, but it's not always possible, you know. If if the right players, the players you've earmarked as as your, you know, ways of replacing a, a player like Kai Havertz aren't popping up for the right price, or or you know something's blocking it because it's a complicated transfer window, then sometimes it just doesn't work. And I think, yeah, that's that's not great for them. Um, I wouldn't be surprised in that respect if if they're one of the more active ones in January if they really do feel that they've you know they've not done what they wanted to there, do there was some noise about them and 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 Mario Götze um at, at a certain point in time that Götze at least was was interested in joining them but um you know the club was not as interested in him joining them yeah I can I I I, I think that's kind of the thing isn't it it's is if they again it's like I say if they, if they have a an idea of how they want to you know fill that gap and it's it's not good so then they're faced with the choice of do we take the second rate option or do we wait and do we you know uh wait until our, our best options become available or, or you know the, the next chance comes up and uh in some ways i think it's you know it's as sensible to say okay we'll we'll go in with perhaps not the squad we imagined into the first half and then and then see what we can do next time around and you know in, in some ways the fact that it's finished late does at least mean that the transfer window doesn't mean at least mean there's a small gap between this one and the next one. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's it's not been the best start of the season. Um, I, I still think they're they're you know very good side attacking wise. Obviously they miss Harvards, but they still have that kind of you know those 
very, very sort of pacey wingers and, and, a, and a good poach in the middle of the Lario. And, you know, it's, it's certainly not a, a significantly weakened side, I don't think. So if they can keep their heads above water, you know, we'll see what they do in January and, and see how they go. Yeah. And, and just to bring this back to the Europa League, I, I really feel like looking at that group, if they do anything other than get out of it, um, that's just a complete a complete and utter failure. The other team in the Europa League uh, for Germany this year, we've already mentioned them in, in the first part of the show, is uh, TSG Hoffenheim. Uh, they are preparing to welcome Red Star uh, to, to Zinsheim this week. Uh, later in the group, they'll, they'll be facing Slovan Liberec and uh, Ghent, not Genk, as opposed to Genk, not Ghent. Any thoughts about how they might be approaching this? I mean, clearly Hoffenheim is, is, a, is a club who... Um, you know, would like to establish themselves in in this sort of group of of Bundesliga sides who are sort of in or around the European places year on year. So having a good Europa League campaign, in my view, is something that they should be very interested in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's sort of similar to what I was saying before about, you know, clubs needing a few years in the, in the Champions League before they really start to make their mark. I think it, you know, I think in some ways I, I, I wonder why German clubs seem to underestimate that uh, somehow in the Europa League. I mean, obviously, if the, you know if you're a Mainz or an Augsburg and you, you get in in a, in a really good year, you know, okay, you may feel that that putting all your your um, your money on the Europa League is is going to leave you in danger of, of losing concentration in the relegation fight, and then you know, so maybe you do, you know, put that on the back burner, as it were, and and, and it's not so surprising if those things go out early, but. I really feel, yeah, teams like Hoffenheim, Weisburg, um, even you know Gladbach and Leverkusen are probably the, the the rung above. A really good run. I mean, you saw it with Frankfurt the way the way it kind of buoys a club and and and, and creates a mood which which attracts new players and which uh, keeps that pressure off and and just yeah breeds positivity. It, it, you know, it, I, I think it's underestimated in some ways, and I think if if yeah, a club like Hoffenheim can do it, um, or any club, but particularly a club like that, then it, the, the kind of knock-on effects um, can last for a few seasons in terms of the transfer market and in terms of the, the general sort of expectation and move. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, Frankfurt's stature uh, in, in, in across Europe, I think, was lifted immensely by that that run to the, uh, the semifinal. Speaking of Eintracht, uh, they were in action uh, on the weekend, even though teardrops falling. They are not in uh, Europa League action this season. Uh, it was a, a game between them and uh, Cologne. Uh, it was basically Andre versus Andre. Silva scored first. Duda scored second. It was a draw in the end, one of those 1-1 games we talked about. Uh, and, and another 1-1 game from the weekend being uh, Freiburg and uh, Werder Bremen. And I know absolutely nothing about that game. Do you want to talk uh, about any of those teams or should we uh, call it a day? <laughs> I think we can call it a day. Yeah, <laughs> I sat through those games. I have nothing, nothing significant to say about. Fair enough, fair enough. And I and I do promise all, all fans of all four of those teams there will be more coverage uh, of your teams in in future episodes. I'm actually quite uh, hoping to have uh, have some people on who can bring on, uh, you know, expert content uh, uh, on on some of those teams in the coming weeks. So that is it for this edition of Talking Foosball. That was produced, as always, by Aidan Rantoul. Really, really good to have you back 
on the pod, Kit. Yeah, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Spectacular. Let's do it again, perhaps uh, around around Derby time, hint, hint. You can follow Kit on Twitter, at Kit Holden. You can read his work in German uh, at, at Tagesspiegel. You can learn all about Union uh, in Berlin, as well as uh, read his work in English occasionally on the Mail Online. If you want to contact the podcast, me, anybody else, hit us up at Talking Foosball on Twitter, and please do subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your pods. Tell a friend about us. Spread the word. This is the next mall, y'all.